Jesus' great sacrifice for us on the cross at the hand of soldiers was a victory and a triumph. And because of his victory on the cross, he defeated sin and death and war. And he calls on all humanity to come together as one. No longer Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, but all one in Christ. And so that we can be reconciled to God by his sacrifice and reconciled to one another is a wonderful miracle. Welcome back, everyone, to the Shock Absorber podcast. It is great to have you along with us, whether you're watching us on YouTube or listening to us in your ears via your favourite podcast app. And I have our usual guest with me, Tim. How are you? Oh, I'm doing very well. Thanks, Joe. Excellent. You've been working on an assignment late into the night last night. Yes, I'm, I'm working on about three hours sleep this morning, so we'll Excellent. see how that goes. A perfect us. way to do podcasting, I think. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Just off the cuff. What was your assignment on? Oh, looking at different um, paradigms, different um, theoretical frameworks which compose a research question. And so I had to creatively come up with three different research questions based on my topic, which is, was kind of fun. Well, I was talking to you about it this morning and I said, oh, it sounds fascinating. You're like, yeah, it was really good. It was, I, <laughs> really there, was, there was something really fun about it. it just It was a very creative way of uh, pitching the assignment, I, mm. I thought. But um, it actually gave me some ideas. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, excellent. Right, yeah. Well, we'll hope to hear from them at some point yeah. during the podcast season. <laughs> <laughs> Stu, have you been up doing an assignment as well? No. No, that's good. <laughs> no, you're not. I'm, I'm glad I haven't been. I, w- I was sleeping. Yes, me too. At 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> so um, congratulations on finishing the assignment. Yeah, thanks. Team, so. yeah, that's good. Well done. The semester's over now. So. Okay. Good. So do you feel well prepared for the topic we're about to talk Not about today? Not in the slightest, <laughs> but uh, we'll just keep, that's never stopped me before. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You're so humble. Well, we're talking about uh, religion and wars uh, today, and um, we always like to start with a, a uh, cultural artifact. Now, Stu, I was just going to ask, are we going to do the speech of Henry V that you were just showing <laughs> us then, or uh, Hacksaw Ridge? Which one would you prefer? I, I like your idea of Hacksaw Ridge. I think that's really good. Yeah, today we're looking at... Um, Again, we, uh, if you've been travelling with us through the season, we, we have been looking at some of the aspects of Christian history that uh, have been fraught and sometimes mm-hmm. people uh, will bring up, doesn't Christianity cause wars? Shouldn't we leave religion out of politics? Um, you know, uh, most wars in history were caused by religion. Comments like that we'll often hear as Christians. And as we've done in a few of our season's episodes, we will look at a particular topic that people might bring up sometimes and just actually evaluate that comment. So today we're going to evaluate the comment, do Christians uh, cause wars? Uh, How many wars do Christians cause if they do cause wars? Uh, That's a topic that might be really helpful for many of our listeners and viewers as they're talking with other people, particularly who are atheists and secular atheists who Mm -hmm. might just assume that religion is... Haven't we discarded that because it causes people to fight with each other? Um, There used to be this polite saying in Australia, the three things you don't talk about is sex, religion and politics. And um, these days I don't think people um, talk about Anything, anything else. else. I think there's a lot of things being spoken about. But when people talk about religion, there's a, uh, yeah, there's this nuance, oh, isn't it kind of dangerous to be religious? You don't want to get too into it and become too active in it because it could turn violent, could uh, split uh, people and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, so we thought we'd um, start the, the whole conversation with this cultural artifact of a movie which mm. came out, Joel. 2016 
which is a biographical war film directed by Mel Gibson. So I believe it was based on a true story because I haven't. Um, oh, it's based on a 2004 documentary called The Conscientious Objector. Yeah, I haven't actually seen it, but uh, you yep. have, Stu. And but it does focus on a particular character by the name of Desmond Doss, and yes. he was a pacifist combat medic, and yes. so he was a Seventh Day Adventist Christian. But he refused to carry or use a weapon or firearm of any kind during World War Two. Yes, in the Pacific campaign. In the Pacific War, yes, yes. and uh, he became and he was ordered the first person. He was the first person to be awarded the Medal of Honor for the being a conscientious objector um, for his service above, above the call of duty in the Battle of Okinawa. Yes. So I, I haven't seen it. What were your impressions of the movie? Well, the Battle of Okinawa was particularly brutal, and it was a battle. Um, I think it was the second battle fought on. Japanese soil. I think um, Iwo Jima was the first one, I think. But basically the Americans had been fighting the Japanese in the uh, Pacific campaign during World War II in a very brutal island hopping campaign yeah, was, where, where the soldiers were being um, delivered to various islands and then they'd mm. fight for the islands. Very different to the uh, the other major theatre of World War Two over in Europe, wasn't it? it was that, which was mainly land-based. Yeah, it was a lot different. So, yeah, it was really brutal, uh, really... Um, visceral. There was a lot of images captured of it too. So it was the f- some of the first battles to really bring home to the American public, in particular, the real brutality and right. horrific nature of war. Particularly, Saipan Tarawa Marine uh, videographers landed with the troops and took a lot of footage, some in colour, which was quite horrific. Anyway, uh, Desmond was uh, enlisted into the army. Uh, I think he was actually. Um, yeah, I don't know how he ended up in the army in the first place. You might be able to look up and tell me that. But his big issue with the army was – I've seen the movie and I've read the story, uh, but basically the summary for everyone is it's quite a brutal movie, so be careful. Um, it, it's quite shocking and mm. stark. It's not at all a glorification of war. It's actually a uh, an anti-war movie. And particularly because it's uh, made protagonist, Desmond is is a pacifist Christian. And pacifism within Christianity is not a topic that um, the movies and the media often go to in this topic. And that's why we chose it, because it actually does challenge that stereotype that Christians cause war, because there's actually been quite a significant pacifism within Christian sects through the history of uh, Christianity, where Christians have uh, refused to take up arms against other human beings because they don't want to murder and they take the Ten Commandments as Desmond did quite literally and Mm. thou shalt not murder was something he took so literally he wouldn't even touch a gun. So he suffered quite significantly in basic training as he was bullied and harassed and was even um, court-martialed at one stage, I think. Mm. Anyway, he was before some tribunal and basically they were trying to force him to touch the gun and he wouldn't do it and even his own men in his unit were bashing him at night because they're trying to force him to to pick up this gun and he just wouldn't do it so they made him a medic anyway the the quite moving aspect of the movie is that he isn't afraid he's not a coward he actually goes into battle with the men but he just doesn't want to hurt anyone and Hacksaw Ridge is in Okinawa and um, the brutality of the situation was that the marines had to climb this vertical cliff on a uh, a carriage net that they used to have to walk you know, go down the side of the ship to get into the landing mm. craft. Well, they'd put one of those nets up on the side of the cliff and they were climbing up this net and climbing up ladders or ropes or whatever to go up on top of this cliff and then fight a battle over the top of the cliff. And it was quite a brutal battle. And so all these Marines had gone over the top and Desmond, as a medic, had gone up with them 
and he was running around saving guys. But the irony is that even as the Japanese had pushed them off the cliff, Desmond would stay on the battlefield even through the night trying to find people who were injured to get them back to the cliff and with his own hands lower them over the edge of a cliff, quite significant one, like 10-metre cliff, Mm -hmm. with a rope. And so he's running around the battlefield. But the interesting thing about Desmond is he was saving Japanese and Americans who were hurt and injured on the battlefield. He he saved scores of people, and that's why he got his medal, for extreme bravery. But I think the most moving part of the movie was actually when uh, they ordered the last day of charge and the the generals or whatever back at HQ couldn't work out why they hadn't attacked already. Why, why aren't you attacking? And he drove down in a Jeep. Sure enough, he found the whole of his army just standing at the bottom of this cliff, just standing there. He's like, what are you doing? And they're, they're saying, oh, we're waiting for Desmond to finish praying because he's praying. And before we go into battle, we don't want to go into battle without Desmond. And mm. so the whole, whole, you know, whole, whole moving part of that was these men who were – belittling and abusing him for being a Christian who was acting out of conviction not to hurt anyone now were really dependent on this guy Mm. and there's this really moving sentence that Desmond was saying and apparently it's a true story he was um as he was exhausted he was I think he might have even been wounded himself as he was trying to save people he was under a great deal of duress but he kept praying this prayer while he was in the battlefield one more Lord just one more and so he'd go out one more time just get one more man and bring him back and then he'd say one more Lord one more I don't know if uh, your literature there has how many he saved I think but it, it was he, quite a few well, in Wikipedia it says he saved the lives of 50 to 100 wounded infantrymen wow. atop, atop the area known as wow. the 96th Division or Hacksaw Ridge so apparently he lost lowered all of them down over the edge of a cliff. So not mm. only did he carry them back out of the battlefield under fire to the edge of the cliff, he put them over the edge of a cliff with, with rope. And he was wo- wounded four times he while was, on was Okinawa. Yeah. yeah, there you go. So yeah. a, a very fascinating story. Mm. Um, Tim, before we move on, I suppose, and uh, Stu and I have a, a shared interest in military history. I'm just wondering, do, do you have share the same interest? I don't think as much. It, no, it's not, not ever something that's ever um, really grabbed my attention mm. um so yeah i mean i've seen a couple of war movies but yeah nothing uh big and, and i'd i mean i love listening to Stu as you talk about different strategies and um yeah often Stu using um military analogies or the strategic way in which different battles are formed and you've used that for a number of deal illustrative and, and metaphoric purposes and i always find that intriguing but mm. no it's another something that i've delved into yeah, I mean, like the only reason I was asking because I recently found a YouTube channel. It's called World War Two, but two is spelt you know T W O, and they go through all of World War Two week by week and what happened right. week by week, and it's devastating. But I also find it fascinating, and that's what I find sometimes a little bit hard to understand myself is why do I find particularly World War Two really interesting, um, and I think that part of it is the strategic thing that you're talking about, Tim. Right, yeah, I yeah. enjoy seeing how strategy played out during war but I, I, I don't think it's like a glorification of it either I don't enjoy the fact that many millions of people have died throughout wars but sure I was going to ask you the question like you you are really fascinated by military history too what's what's the reason behind that yeah I think I think because I got brought up in a family that for the proximity of World War Two for me I was born in 1968 my grandparents mm. lived through the blitz and um, my interest in in that story caused me to just look for more stories. I'm, I'm interested mm. in stories and I'm interested in how people perform under duress like mm. Desmond mm. in that battle. Mm. Uh, again, I, I abhor war and I think war is horrible and, and um, always 
hope that it, it never happens again. But I know that Jesus did say there will always be wars and rumours of wars. So conflict, unfortunately, is part of life. And I'm interested in the fact that um, Paul uses uh, interesting military analogies talking about, for example, the whole of the F- book of Ephesians is about our spiritual battle with um, that we're at war. Um, Paul also talks about the fact that we shouldn't be civilians, we should be like farmers or athletes or soldiers who actually have a task to do and actually see that we should be fighting against principalities and powers, not against flesh and blood. Um, so the very topic that we've got before us today is about people fighting against flesh and blood in the name of God and why do they do that, when do they do that and how often do they do that. And it's important for us as Christians to know that part of our history because there's some dark parts of that that we mm-hmm. should feel a great deal of sadness and uh, feel quite shamed by actually like there's some terrible stories done in the name of god but as we'll see today it's not as simple to say it's not a simple thing to say that religion causes wars wars are always caused by a multiplicity of different factors including greed and land grabs and gold and power and influence and all those sorts of things as well so people often use the name of god to justify their causes as well so we'll see that a bit today but yeah my, my first stories that i heard was sitting in the lounge room listening to my nan and pop talking about running down into a hole in the ground in the backyard as people dropping bombs on them and i just yeah. used to think how did you do that yeah. so for me war is about it's a horrible thing that we've got to try and tell those stories so that that we don't glorify it so that we don't rush into it in the future but all and particularly at the moment there's lots of rumors of wars now we've got wars and rumors of wars with ukraine there's a war going on right now some people are, are chest beating over that saying you know we should go in there and fight and all this sort of stuff and there's um a real fear at the moment within the indo-pacific region as tensions are heightening as well and some people are becoming wary and getting excited about the prospect of stopping an enemy enemy and but you know i i remember hearing my nan and pop talking about their parents being terrified when they first heard that world war one was announced and my great-great-grandfather um, suffering greatly in the trenches and then uh, Nan and Pop saying they sat there and listened to Winston Churchill declaring that war had broken out with Germany a second time and how terrified and so sad they were about that. So, yeah, I, I think um, I think war is not um, glorious. It's actually horrible. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, but we're, we're not actually going to go into um, uh, the idea of um, whether Christians should partake in war or not yeah. in this podcast that should be said uh, even though we've looked at that cultural artifact mm. from Desmond but what we are going to talk about today is do Christians cause most wars and is because I think that is a bit of a thing that particularly the new atheists have brought up since 9-11 we've talked about that in a few previous podcasts and so there is an objection to Christians speaking out because people say well you guys cause war so you have no right to open your mouths and I think that can cause some Christians to hesitate when they go to share their faith and mm. that's what we're looking at this season why don't Christians share their faith at the moment easily and partly it's because maybe this criticism that Christians cause war could silence us a little and maybe if we can tap into this topic today we can understand that actually christians haven't caused most of the wars in history and so we can have some good answers to those questions and have a good apologetic and helpful i suppose in the way that we evangelize and chat to people about jesus mm. um, which is what this season is about um yeah uh, to that point you were saying that um george carlin the uh very famous comic especially from the 80s and 90s said that um to loud applause in one of his specials that he did he said more people have been killed in the name of god than for any other reason um and i think that matches 
perhaps some of that um, rhetoric you're talking about probably was uh, accelerated after 9-11 yes, and the new atheists. So. Yeah. The new atheists really um, tapped into that. My next question was going to be that, why do you think it became more prominent since 9-11? We've kind of talked about it a little bit, but do you think it was because it was, we've talked about in the previous episode when we really mentioned 9-11, that it was the end of an era? It was the end of, uh, well, communism had kind of been, in a sense, vanquished towards the end of the, uh, the 80s, and then uh, 9-11 was, uh, was seen as like, oh, hang on, is everything over? Because it was seen as the American century. Uh, do you think that was a reason why people are talking about that more? That it was seen as a uh, uh, an attack by Muslim extremists, but then it's like, well, then this is, these are the kind of things that cause wars. Do you think? What do you think, Tim? Do you think that was one of the reasons why people reacted that way? Yeah, it certainly seemed to be the sense from the commentary um, class. Yeah, you, know, you read a lot of newspapers and you hear the people on the news, and um, they're kind of and again the a lot of. Um, a lot of the, the media and the commentary is done by people who don't have religious faith. So, um, and so that uh, there is that there was that shock at 9-11. That it's very visceral. Yeah, really, really visceral. And the, um, that our, our post-Christian secular happiness of life, like this, this we thought, you know, this upward trajectory, everything was going to get better. We talked about, uh, uh, I'm going to say his name, Ron Fukuyama's, end of history this idea that um everything was just now on this trajectory towards um upward growth upward mobility um the world was always heading in a better place and maybe there should there might still be um some some wars and rumors of wars um in other parts of the globe but certainly in the developed west who had become postmodern, become secular uh, moving away from those things all of a sudden this really visceral react uh, act happened um, and it was um, religiously motivated uh, in that it was um, people of another faith um, and it was seen I think both um, in America but also a lot of the rhetoric from the Taliban was also this you know it's it's Islam versus the Christian West um, and that added a layer of complexity as well because again we had a lot of people in the, the news media who wouldn't have called themselves Christian, they would have said themselves as secular and postmodern and they couldn't, they're trying to make sense of where this theological language of Islam versus Christianity, where it was coming from. Um, but from the Taliban's point of view, they still see the West as Christian. Um, and so that was, there's part of this theological language that was going on. And that was the wrestling, I think, that our society had was we've got this, this religious group that has caused such a horrific event um, you know, on the on on Western shores, um, completely. Um, I mean, it, it was you know, peacetime, uh, and so it wasn't during wartime, and so the, the all of that compounded um, to bring religion back into the forefront. You then had um, George Bush, who made um, a lot of his statements um, in the following days and weeks had a bit of a religious language to them as well, and this time a very Christian religious language. Um, he's from the, the southern states, Texas, I think, um, and so uh, I've got no idea what his personal faith is, but he's certainly got the that um, that Christian language of, of Christian America that comes through in the way that he spoke, and so that just hyped up the rhetoric. And so again, you've got the those who... 
uh, in part of the new atheism which was also coming to fore during that time. Um, a lot of the, as you say, the, the comics and the others who are really popular voices in the media um, are saying, well, here, here we go. We've got this religious Islamic group. We've got this religious Christian conservative government. Um, and if we could just get rid of religion, we could go back to this you know, post-modern secular you know, almost utopia that we were kind of in. So, yeah, there's all those kind of things playing around. It's interesting even at that time, like we're talking about uh, the 9-11 attacks were seen as uh, Muslim extremists against the Christian West. But the Christian West is going through its own thing of like, we don't need Christianity anymore. We're post-Christian. It's not It's not necessary. Um, so do you think that contributed also to the view that we shouldn't like just not have religious views in the public square and that was kind of within that moment as well that they were trying to understand what why do we need christianity but then we've got a a, a different religion attacking us because we are supposedly christian so what where do you think that kind of sat with what the yeah, new so, atheists were so about? atheism was around for a long time and as we can yeah. do in this podcast we can go back and have a look at some of that but uh post 9 11 you've actually got the, the birth of an aggressive, unapologetic new atheism. Okay. And it was really launched by Sam Harris, who was pretty much an unknown doctoral um, student before 9-11. Uh, but in September um, 11, 2001, he put aside his studies after he watched those two planes hit the towers and then the other plane crash in the field and another plane crash into the Pentagon. Mm. And what he came to write was uh, his his book that became a bestseller, which was called The End of Faith. And so in many ways, mm. Sam Harris started the new atheist movement off the back of 9-11. And what was interesting about that book was he just didn't, ho- uh, he didn't hold back. He just really went for uh, a, a really anti-religious view that was anti-Islam and anti-Christian and anti-all religion. Um, he basically uh, wrote that book um, calling religion a cult of death, machinery, a machinery of intolerance, suicidal grandiosity. And so he's using this really strong language to describe the incident. Um, uh, he really um, narrows in on, on the suicide bombers' um, Muslim faith and saying that just like any other faith, this is a problem with religion. And it was only two years later that he was joined by Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, and these guys together became known as the Four Horsemen of the New Atheism, and that's parody of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which is in Revelation. So it's almost like these guys are setting themselves up to bring down religion right. uh, because they're so angry. And it was this um, this brutal act of um, the planes flying into the towers that sparked it. So really uh, deep in the psyche of modern new atheism um, is this moment. And so I think, yeah, there's this real anger at uh, violence of, of that moment. And um, it, it opened up a whole new area of exploration. You know, um, these guys start reading the Old Testament and look at the Joshua story where Joshua and the Israelites go into the land of Canaan. Um, they look at that and and say, you know, this is motivated by a um, maniacal God who's who's genocidal and, you know, all these really strong words uh, to describe the God of the Bible. And so I think sometimes when we talk to atheists or people today who are influenced by this kind of logic, even though with the 2010s there's been this growing 
um, movements towards um, not calling terrorists Islamic terrorists anymore. They're just called terrorists now. And so there's this sense of toning down that language in the popular public square. But in the beginning, after 9-11, it was just visceral. It was just like, you know, mm. religion causes violence. We have to get rid of religion. So 2010, there was a Pew poll that found that only 30% of Americans have had a favourable view of Islam, 30% after 9-11, and that was down from 41% in 2005, and that was a year after Harris's book. So, so there's actual evidence that these books actually started to change public opinion towards um, Islam in that, in that um, regard, but also in religions in general. Mm-hmm. What would um, If someone came up to you, someone that was probably had been reading The New Atheist, and said, well, all wars are caused by religion or religion has caused so many religions. Similar to that George Carlin quote of more people are being killed in the name of God for any other reason. What's your response to that? Well, I think that's what today's about. It's about let, mm. let's have a look at it. Yeah, like, okay. let's, let's, let's dig into it a bit. And when you look at the statistics and you look at um, the history of this terrible uh, thing called war, you actually see it's a lot more complicated than being able to narrow uh, conflict down to one big issue. And um, so I think that's what we'll find as we look at it today. Well, I was having a look at, uh, we were doing some research prior to the podcast, um, trying to be a little bit prepared. But as you're saying that um, I found an article by uh, a rabbi in uh, the Huffington Post, and he was talking about a book called Encyclopedia of Wars, which is authored by Charles Mm. Phillips and Alan Axelrod. And they documented the history of recorded warfare and they looked at 1,763 wars and they found in their research that only 123 have been classified to involve a religious cause, which account for less than 7% of all wars and less than 2% of all people killed in warfare. Do you think that kind of argument is going to be uh, favourable to people that are asking a question of like, are all wars going uh, are all wars caused by religion if if we perhaps quote those statistics back to them is that how they're going to are they going to respond or are they going to come up for another reason do you think that that no no that's still that's still the case that no religion still causes wars what do you think we talked um last week about the the idea of culture wars or um what was your term Stu? battle the of ideas battle of ideas and part of um what goes on when we have these quite emotion-filled debates is that um, it's it's hard to be purely objective. And actually, I, I, we're very rarely purely objective. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I will have a visceral reaction when someone, you know, an aggressive atheist comes at me and just goes, well, you're God's highlight of rubbish or, you know, whatever strong language they want to use. And um, and I, I find it hard to go, oh, that's, that's yeah, it's that's emotionally... Um, confronting to me and, and not confident that the best way to engage in these arguments is that you know we, we throw um, facts back and forward at each other because often in those kind of conversations we're, we're not actually listening we're just waiting for the next opportunity to say the next thing that's on our mind yeah. so but um and it's one of the reasons why I don't think um, internet debates if you are, are any good whatsoever um, and the conversations that happen uh, on social media, those kinds of things. But to be able to sit down with someone um, and have a long conversation over a cup of coffee or a lunch and just sort of say, look, um, let me know what you think. Like, I think they're the kind of ones that help generate. But it, it is with that framework, I suppose, in mind, um, it is worth knowing 
some of these um, st- statistics and, and information, not just to be able to throw spars back at the other person and go, well, you're stupid because you haven't thought of this. And, and get the gotcha moment. Yeah, the gotcha mm-hmm. moments. Um, I, that's a really unhelpful way to, um, you know, win friends and, and have a good conversation, which is actually um, gospel oriented both in truth but also in manner or, or I say posture like the the way that we come to conversations needs to be fueled by the gospel as well as the actual truth of what we say fueled by the gospel um, but it, it's good to be well prepared and I think um, uh, is it Peter that talks about this you know always be prepared to give an answer um, and if these are the kind of conversations that come up and it is increasingly it's it's one of the well yeah, I say increasingly we're now, what, 20-something years after 9-11. So there's been a long history of this being one of the things that people throw at Christians and say, well, this this is why religion is rubbish. This is why um, we need to get rid of religion. Um, I think, um, was it Hitchens' book was subtitled, you know, How Religion Poisons Everything. Mm. Um, God is Not Great, I think was the name of the title. Um, and so for us to be prepared so that we can then be um, ready to have the non-anxious conversations. Um, I think that's a great preparation for us. So if, if we are in situations where we have these kind of conversations, we feel like that's a topic that comes up regularly, yes, it's absolutely worth knowing these things and having a little bit of things in our back pocket that we can bring out at the right time, in the right way, with the right posture. But, yeah, um, ultimately it, it's indefensible to say that religion causes all wars and we'll, we'll explore that more as we go mm. um and it's it's good for us to know that um one of the things i do i do some apologetics training for some high schools at a camp called lit um and one of the things we talk about there is that the objections that we face are often far less strong than they appear um and that's yeah. just a basic principle that i want to instill in uh, the teenagers that I'm training and other you know, young people as well, is a lot of these objections come with a lot of emotive force. Yeah. Um, and when you're looking at them online and on YouTube, you're often looking at really well-prepared videos or you're looking at someone who sounds really articulate as they you know, feel themselves in, in their study. Um, and so it can be overwhelming with these things. But to be able to slow down and say, actually, maybe the objections we're hearing are not as strong as they appear, um, and then think about what is being said and start to question that, which is what we want to do over the next little bit, um, that's a really helpful um, starting point as we get into these conversations. Yeah, I find that helpful. Stu, do you want to add to the about having that posture? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's what Timothy Paul Jones was saying a couple of episodes ago when we had him on the podcast. And he was saying that um, modern apologetics is less about that Christianity is true, although that is still a conversation we need to have with people. But it's more about the moral uh, issues that mm. come with Christianity. And this issue is a moral issue. And so when people throw this moral issue out, I think it can be helpful to them to deconstruct some of the emotional new atheist rhetoric that came out of 9-11, which was a bit of a knee-jerk reaction in a lot of ways to a very horrific situation. But in some ways, the new atheist movement's run out of steam anyway uh, recently. I mean, even Mm. um, Richard Dawkins has been... um, uh, rebuked by the American Humanist Association for tweets that he's made regarding, um, um, you know, more modern kind of um, 
uh, issues around transgender issues and some oh, of the yeah. stuff he wrote on Twitter mm-hmm. uh, was... They took an award off him. Yeah, well, they, they formally rescinded his 1996 AHA award yeah. and um, because of his tweets. So I think one of the things I like to point out to people is that, you know, some of these arguments are very visceral, as was 9-11, and they're very powerful and they're very confident, but they're not always got the weight of evidence behind them. And so... To look at the evidence with people and to say, you know, you've got some statistics there, Joel, about um, uh, that are that are even more helpful than than what I have got off the top of my head. But the um, yeah, this whole idea that um, the, the new atheists are deconstructing Christianity, well, maybe we can deconstruct atheism a bit too. So instead of just defending um, uh, the faith from the attacks of the new atheists, maybe we can just question some of the logic of some of these new atheists. Um, but the problem we've got is that uh, a lot of this argument is around faith and science. So people who attack uh, faith uh, like this talk about, well, we're the people of science. We're the ones with the facts. You're the the people who believe in the big spaghetti monster in the Mm. sky and you have no evidence backing up your argument. And so just to, as Tim said, to in a non-anxious way to present some evidence that does contradict some of the things they're saying is, is science is not... They've not always got all their science behind them. I mean, Richard Dawkins was making a whole heap of analysis of history and sociology and politics and faith, and yet he's a biologist. So he's stepped outside of his scientific realm to discuss other scientific endeavours that he's not actually necessarily an expert on, and he may have found himself caught out by that with that um, AHA award being rescinded uh, in that in, as he continues to be quite... Um, defiant in his rhetoric and and use high modality language Um, maybe people today are like well hang on that's not always appropriate so i think um when we go back and have a look at you know again today at the enlightenment and how the enlightenment Mm. started we'll see that this is a very old problem that we have which is you know people have been saying that religions cause war for many centuries so we've got centuries of this conversation happening not as visceral as it is from 9-11 it's that's only the latest addition to this argument really and so, uh, I mean, we we've spoken about in previous episodes how the Enlightenment and the the discovery of scientific thinking led to uh, obviously the questioning of truth and what the real truth was. And I think that plays into a lot of what you're saying is as like, well, because we have science, we have the real truth. And like, oh, we actually also have we feel that the truth of the Bible and God's truth. Yeah. What? Um, and and that's not negating science. You can believe no. in science and the Bible, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was just going to say, and I think you, you might be able to speak on this, Stuart, also just how the Enlightenment has really influenced us. I mean, we it may as well go back into history, and I think there's two ideas here of, of looking at the Enlightenment, but also the um, the instances of war that have, have perhaps uh, branded a religious war. Yeah. They're the two things that we can look at in history. Which one, should we get, go Enlightenment first? And yeah, I think them? so. I think I think... That's a good place to start because there are, um, you know, in our popular zeitgeist, people are still talking about the Crusades, people are still talking about the Spanish Inquisition, people are still talking about the witch trials and uh, and, and more more um, modern expressions of religious conflict like the Troubles in Ireland mm-hmm. between the Catholics and the Protestants. They're all still part of the zeitgeist. But what's interesting to start back at the Enlightenment is, you know, you've got, you've got a, a period of time um, just at the end of the r- religious wars of... The, uh, the Protestant Reformation, so the Catholics and the Protestants are fighting each other and and um, religious zeal is a major part of some of those conflicts. All, although um, historians have 
dug deeper into the real causes of even the Hundred Years' War, which was predominantly between Catholic nations and Protestant nations. And, and there it's a lot more complex than just Protestantism versus Catholicism. There's a lot of, you know, obviously the Spanish Armada attacked England at one point, sent a whole Armada and, and uh, Queen Elizabeth I rallied an army led by Sir Francis Drake and defended um, uh, England from that attack, which was really strongly religiously motivated as Queen Elizabeth overturned her sister Mary's Catholicism of the country and then instituted uh, the Protestant um, uh, faith. And in a response, the Spanish did attack England, but there was a whole lot more than just faith at play there. The Spanish were in an era of an expansion and they saw this as an opportunity to expand into England as well. So there was was a lot of money to be had, there was a lot of power, a bit of a land grab as well. So that's an example of how wars can be a bit more complicated than they seem on the surface. And some of the new atheist uh, tropes come out of a very simplistic view of some of those things. Oh, like like the, the Hundred Years' War, you know. Well, back at the end of the Hundred Years' War, though, there were some really... Um, uh, definitely thoughtful attempts to try and think about reorganising European society without religion, however, because you know Protestant-Catholic tensions had caused so much of the drama of that Hundred Years' War. So not negating that completely, but just saying it's a bit more complex. But at the end of the uh, Hundred Years' War of the Wars of Reformation, uh, you know, 15, 1600s, we're looking at the emergence of the Enlightenment philosophers. And one example would be the Frenchman Descartes. And it's a bit of a strange story, but um, he was really keen to, to try and think, is there any other way we can organise society other than faith so that we don't kill each other? Mm-hmm. That was a big driver for him. And he was a Christian man, a Catholic. Um, but he, he uh, thought about um, trying to find a new way. And the way he did it was quite dramatic. He apparently got into a, well, the story goes, he, he stepped into an oven, not lit, it was cold, but he, um, some accounts I've read even, he may have even got all his clothes off and sat in the, in the oven and he decided he'd just stay there until he came up with a new idea. I don't know if that actually happened, but it's a good story. But anyway, he came out of the oven with this um, amazing enlightenment phrase that kind of started the whole of enlightenment, which is, I think, therefore I am. Mm-hmm. And what was so amazing about that for him was rather than, I think because, uh, uh, hang on, I think therefore I am, mm. was a very individualistic statement. Mm. And it wouldn't have been possible without the Reformation, actually, because the Reformation was a recapturing of the fact of the importance of the individual in the eyes of God, mm. that all human beings are made in the image of God and that we all have a personal saviour in Jesus Christ and we can actually turn to trust in him for our salvation. But the Enlightenment um, run with that idea a bit further and they say rather than me getting my identity by being part of the group, which may be Protestant or Catholic, I am who I am and I think therefore I am. So that's an individual statement which then the Enlightenment philosophers expand on. Nietzsche, Hume, all the, all the great thinkers of the Enlightenment. And that, that really sets up... Um, combined with the age of science, uh, scientific exploration with Galileo and others who were exploring new ways of explaining the natural world and then Darwinism with uh, uh, Charles Darwin. Um, There's this new expression of science is, as we've said before, reason is is our highest authority and the individual, uh, a reasonable individual, can actually think outside of the religious paradigm and maybe it's better if we have a... um, a, a non-religious way of organising ourselves. And one of the the greatest examples of that was in the 
18th century when the French Revolution took place mm. and they overthrew the king and they overthrew the church. And so they stormed the Bastille and saw that the church and the state were part of the criminal alliance that was subjugating the people of France. Um, and so that was, that was a secular overthrow and there was something like 17,000 people, men, women and children, died uh, in the French Revolution as a result of that revolution. But that's an interesting example of a secular uprising overthrowing a religious regime. So that introduces the whole idea that uh, the forces that were unleashed by the Reformation and then the Enlightenment actually ended in bloody consequences in either example. And, and I think you've got some statistics there talking about the 20th century too because as you start looking at the 20th century with the secular wars of the 20th century, you start seeing mechanised warfare killing mm. proportionally far more people than have been killed in previous wars. Uh, yeah, that statistic that you were talking about, Stu, was that uh, nearly 35 million soldiers and civilians died in World War One alone and I would guess that World War Two would probably be even more than that. Yeah, there's a there's a statistician called Matthew White who's estimated on the worldwide statistics of casualties. His uh, estimate is that a total of about 123 million people died in all the wars of the 20th century mm. and 37 million were of military deaths. 27 million were collateral civilian deaths and 41 million people died of genocide and other mass murder. And... On top of that, another 18 million people are estimated to have died from famines caused by wars. So it's just absolutely tragic. So, so these wars are all uh, caused by a, a number of complex different factors. But as we go back to that statistic earlier that people throw at Christians saying most wars are caused by religion, just looking at the 20th century, you can see that it's a lot more complicated than that mm. and a great deal more people died in the 20th century from wars than things like the Spanish Inquisition, which I think 3,000 people died over a how many year period was that, Tim? Yeah, I've got the statistics here uh, from a John Dixon article on the uh, abc.net.au. Um, he talks about how the more recently historians have estimated the Spanish Inquisition killed approximately five to 6,000 people over the 350-year history. Uh, so that's fewer than 18 a year. And, of course, John recognises one a year is too many. However, uh, when we're thinking about, you know, it, the rhetoric is often about how monstrous um, religious wars are and how they're responsible for so many deaths. Um, and it's just the, particularly, you know, looking at the Spanish Inquisition, that doesn't really stack up in terms of um, the, the monstrous capacity it's often linked to. Um, and John goes on to talk about the troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, he says it's, um, again, we've got about 3,500 people died during the Northern Ireland troubles across a 30-year period. Um, and so, once again, uh, I'll just quote John, one death in the name of Christ is a blasphemy, but the iconic status of these two evils of Christendom exceeds the reality. Yeah. And so just the... Um, Recognising, yes, these ones, the Spanish Inquisition, clearly a religious war. There, there was religious impulse that was going on there amongst the complexity of other things. Same with Northern Ireland. You had Catholics versus Protestant, really deep religious themes and complexity of other issues as well. Um, but when you've got this really clear layer of religious um, instinct across the, the warring parties, um, 
yes, it, it is true. And it, it's abhorrent that that has happened. It's abhorrent that it's happened in the name of Christ. Um, but yeah, just it, the relatively few numbers who have died in those, however awful they are, um, just pales in comparison to some of the other wars, which really just don't have those religious um, layering. Um, it's hard to make a case for, um, you know, for, for Hitler and the Nazi regime that there is a, a serious religious layer over the top. He, Some he, people try to, don't they? But there wasn't. They, they do try. And he, he does use religious language. And again, he's in the 1930s and 1940s. There's a lot more sort of cultural religious language mm. hanging around. That's right. Um, and so there's a lot of rhetoric, perhaps. Mm. If you look at what Hitler is trying to do in Germany, um, the reasons that he has risen to power in the 30s, um, the policies that he's put in place and what he's trying to establish um, for the German people um, after the humiliation of the end of World War I and the depression that that put the German nation into, um, these are not religious concerns. They're, they're nationalistic concerns. They're political concerns. They're economic concerns. It's, it's about the pride of Germany in the place of Europe. Um, that's what's going on. That's the motivating factor for the socialist regime um, and... To, to try and say, oh, well, because he uses some religious rhetoric and therefore it's equivalent to the Spanish Inquisition, the Northern Ireland Troubles, even the Crusades is just, it's, it's an argument that just doesn't stack up. Mm. And I think, I think um, that rhetoric is a, is a good word to describe uh, some of these leaders. They use religious rhetoric to justify uh, what, what they're trying to do sometimes. I mean, I think both sides of World War I were praying to God and claiming that God was on their side. Mm-hmm. Both, both there, were, there were German Christians and English Christians in trenches opposing each other, praying to the same God. And um, I think the sad part about that is that, you know, when you when you do go back to books like Joshua, when Joshua um, asked the uh, the angel who'd come to meet him, whose side was he on? The angel said, I'm not on, well, whose side is God on? Is God on our side or the people of Jericho? The angel said, God's not on either side. The question is, are you on God's side? And I think the interesting thing is that human beings always try and say, well, God's on my side. But, um, yeah, that, that's uh, a false claim often. But, yeah, like, like we're saying, the, the 20th century is full of uh, secular secular uh, wars. Um, even uh, uh, former National Security Advisor to Jimmy Carter um, wrote that um, in the 20th century, something like, this is by the 1970s, that um, that communism and the attempts to build communism had uh, directly led to the deaths of 60 million people as well. So there's like internal civil wars going on within countries too, like with the Russian Revolution and then uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party fighting the, um, the, the nationalists and then and then the purges that took place after that also caused a great deal of carnage as well. But some, somehow these sorts of statistics and these sorts of stories have slipped away from our popular memory and we're left with memories of the Crusades or the witch hunts. But even if you go back to the Crusades, and yes, the uh, popes did uh, call on Crusades to take back Jerusalem and the Holy Land, uh, but that was in the context of a great struggle between uh, the Muslim powers and the Christian powers over Asia Minor particularly. And it wasn't just about the Christian armies going to fight for God to take Jerusalem. There was also uh, stories of crusaders who got as far as the Byzantine 
Empire and got to Constantinople and sacked Constantinople because they just wanted a quick um, cash grab and not go all the way to Jerusalem. So they came back with all the cash there. And in some ways, that actual attack on Constantinople weakened it so much that when the Muslim armies did attack Constantinople, it was significantly weakened. So it's actually internal fighting between the Christians that was causing that too. And so you look at the nationalism that goes on within the wars of those periods of time between, mm. I was talking about the the Spanish Armada in the 1500s with the um, the English, that was nationalistic in the extreme. And, um, you know, Queen Elizabeth's so-called speech where she talked about uh, fighting for God and for country and that she was going to be the noble leader of her people, all those kind of nationalistic tropes go right through all these wars as well. So I, I think in that sense, where do we go from that? Like it's not mm. just a, a case of sitting down with, with some of these very sad memories and just unpacking them. But what I think we do do is I think it really interests atheists in particular when Christians talk about the fact that we're not nationalistic and that we're not actually keen for war, and that we're not actually proponents of bombing and killing our enemies. And for us to actually talk about um, passages from the Bible that um, our Lord Jesus talked about that are so radical and so beautiful and so transformative in this space, things like the fact that Jesus said, you've heard it said, um, um, You've heard it said. You've heard it said on a number of different issues, and then he, and then he talks about enemies, and he says, "And Jesus is the first teacher in history to ever say love your enemies," and I don't think many atheists know that that there was no other teacher that have ever taught that before. So, you know, what is the solution to war? That's got to be a good starting point to actually have a stance where you're prepared to love your enemy instead of fight your enemy. So, there's plenty of stories in Christian history of that as well, where Christians have loved their enemies and not tried to kill them. So, I, th- I think that. Bringing people back to Jesus is the way, as Timothy Paul Jones said a couple episodes ago, is a really good way of countering this idea that Christians are uh, warmongers, I think is a really good way. And and also, um, you know, I think people of all religions sometimes get tarnished with this brush that all religion is hateful. Um, People talk about wars within Hinduism and Islam and other faiths as well. But as we've said, we're going through these very desperately sad statistics not triumphantly but to say there's a lot of weight of evidence to suggest that these new atheist tropes from the 2000s were a little overcooked Mm. it does seem like a a distinctly um of this time comment as well because i think when you look over the i think it's almost like we've become uh uh what's the right word um insulated from Wars. Um, we 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 talked about. My, I had I have a great uncle who uh, fought on the Kokoda Trail and mm. was in the prison of war um, camp Changi in Singapore. And um, it's very sad. Yeah. And but he but also interestingly he was also the most like I loved his attitude towards life. He was like still he's passed away now, but he even when he was like well into his late 80s he was driving around with his wife Betty and having a good time and having a laugh and had a real um, buoyancy about him and I, I find it interesting that the things that he obviously went through and many people went through his response to that was to be um, uh, quite chiffy seen like how bad it can get so I found that really encouraging from him but I also thought that it's we we are almost withdrawn from that now so we feel like we can have the opportunity to criticize from a a point of view about wars and i'm like 
but I think if we look over the, the history even that's what history was a lot of the time was moving through other countries to gain resources and land grabs and all that kind of thing so if knowing that history I think is important I think that's one of the things that we're talking about is knowing the historical significance of of wars and why they happened helps also to perhaps evangelize I don't know if that's what that's my thought from what we've talked about I don't know what you think though yeah I, th- I think it's just like if, if someone is saying there's a blockage between you know for me even listening to the gospel because you guys talk about peace and love but you cause wars right it's like well okay well let's sit down and talk about that and yes Christians have done some really well people who call themselves Christians done some really terrible things Christians have done some terrible things and we can be honest about that but at the same time we can help people to have a more realistic view of uh, a particular issue that might help them Mm. to then go oh okay so i did think that that was the case but maybe um it's a bit more complex than i thought and maybe i'm a bit more open to listen that that's my thought on that and that's that posture that you were talking about tim and i also think when you're talking about that posture it also makes me think of how we've been talking about many previous episodes of really struggling and trying to hold on to that evangelical line of Mm. knowing what that's part of what this season about is knowing that yes there are um, fraught is a great word that I think you've used you before is that there history is fraught with a lot of things to do with what to do with war and to do with Christians and to try and understand that but then I think is that where you think it is Tim is that we're, we're holding on to that evangelical line by having that posture that you're talking about of willing to listen but also willing to know what historical the historical significance of wars Yes, I think it's we. It is right for non Christians to call Christians out on hypocrisy. I, I think that's a, a good thing to to do. And so, if we have been hypocritical, we should be called on that because it's not um, the gospel uh, of who we are. And so, if we are being bad representatives um, of the gospel because we are not living by the fruits of the spirit. You know, for example, if we are harsh and malicious and angry uh, and fearful, um, then you know P- Paul talks about those being the fruit of the flesh. Um, and how can we hold out the hope of Jesus and say Jesus changes everything, as we often say here at Soul Revival Church, Jesus changes everything, um, and yet not be seeking to live into that changed life, which is the, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Like well it's... Um, they need to characterise who we are Um, and so when Christians have not lived like that then it is right to mourn and it is right to acknowledge and it is right to uh, recognise that they have been moments when we have not lived as Christ called us to live Um, and a it's an unhelpful witness when we say that Jesus changes everything. We've got the hope for the world and here he is, the crucified saviour, um, the humiliated son of God on the cross um, who uh, went to, uh, you know, from heaven to earth, you know, stripped uh, himself, willingly stripped himself of all the privilege that he had, all this Philippians 2 language, um, uh, to, to die a death, not just death, but death on the cross, um, so willingly gave away his own privilege, willingly set aside 
himself and all of the uh, the privileges that he had as godhood to come and die if that is our savior if that is the one we're upholding as this is um, our god this is the god who um, you know suffered and bled and died um, and yet rose again in glory that is the message that we communicate of jesus um, but if we're not also living that out in our posture um, in the way that we live in the way we engage, um, which is why I said last week, you know, a lot of this battle of ideas and this cultural warring stuff, when it comes from people who are claiming that they're Christians and saying, uh, here I am, I'm declaring Christ, and yet I'm going to be an angry evangelical um, or an angry progressive um, and say, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to be really angry um, and abusive online or in my commentary or in the way that I treat others who are unlike myself. It's, it is hypocritical. It's, it's an awful, awful witness, and it's not who Christ has called us to be. Um, and I've completely forgotten what your question originally was, something about the posture. And, um, but, yeah, I think there needs to be an alignment there. And we won't get it right all the time. You know, Jesus you know, tells yes, us. We're all hypocritical as well. We yeah. are all hypocrites, yeah. 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 And, and you know, you've got that great passage in uh, Romans 7 where Paul is at war against himself, and, and yep, we feel right. that. You know, we we won't be perfect until new creation. And we feel the pangs of nationalism and the you know this fear of domination from others as well. Hey? Absolutely, mm. yeah, yeah. So there, we still struggle um, with the the old the old man. Paul calls it inside of us the the old um, sense of self that Jesus has rescued us from by dying on the cross, but yet it's still with us until we reach new creation. Um, so we won't always get it right, but we need to be quick to recognize and apologize for that. Um, and it, that is also part of our witness and part of the message is that we're able to own our mistakes um, and to say, yeah, I got that wrong. Um, and that needs to be part of the message. Yeah, I think part of the, part of the issue too is that each new generation uh, can have a disdain from earlier generations and have this sense that we're starting a new golden era in our generation. And uh, there's an author called Karen Armstrong who's written a book called Fields of Blood, Religion and the History of Violence. Um, she she wrote a, an article in The Guardian recently and one of the points she makes in that is that, uh, that many regard the West's devotion to separation of religion and politics as incompatible with democracy and freedom. So she traces back this idea of separation of church and state back to the Enlightenment, back to this desire for a new way of organising ourselves without religion so we lose uh, lead to less violence mm. but she in her article looks at the 17,000 people who died in the French Revolution to set up that secular idea and there's a difference between the French idea of secularism and the British idea of secularism the French idea is freedom from religion but the so the French secularism is freedom from religion and the British idea of secularism uh, was up until recently freedom of religion so those two ideas are a little bit different. And I think the common discourse of many secularists at the moment is tending, in my opinion, to freedom from religion. But she quite accurately in her book says that there's this myth of religious violence that underpins that idea, that it is a myth that religion leads to violence. And that she says, as we've been saying today, that religion is... Um, and, and, and its relationship to war is very... Uh, complex idea and so helping people to explore that I, I think is a really helpful thing but it's such an emotive issue that people are really 
compelled to speak out for the disenfranchised and the dispossessed and the refugees and sometimes bundle, as we've talked about, how Christians can bundle ideas. Sometimes secularists can bundle a whole heap of myths around that desire to look after people as well. Uh, she actually goes back and has a think about the time before the modern era when religion permeated the whole of society. And she writes this, she says, before the modern period, religion was not a separate activity, hermeneutically sealed off from all others. Rather, it permeated all human undertakings, including economic, state building, politics and warfare. Before 1700, it would have been impossible, impossible for people to say where, for example, politics and religion began and ended. Crusades were certainly inspired by religious passion, but they were also deeply political. Pope Urban II let uh, the Knights of Christendom loose on the Muslim world to extend the power of the church eastwards and create a papal monarchy that would control Christian Europe. The Spanish Inquisition was a deeply flawed attempt to secure the internal order of Spain after a divisive civil war at the time when the nation feared an imminent attack from the Ottoman Empire. Similarly, the European wars of religion and the Thirty Years' War were certainly exasperated by sectarian quarrels between Protestant and Catholics, but their violence reflected the birth pangs of the modern nation-state. So there in that, that if any of our listeners are interested, uh, that's a really interesting read um, from... Uh, from Karen Armstrong that you could look up on on Google and and get into one one qualification too by the way I think I called the wars of the Reformation the Hundred Years War it's actually the Thirty Years War it's called so I got that wrong earlier in the episode so that's just a slight correction as well. Oh, that's fine. Uh, anything else that we like to have a final word on? I just thinking that idea of the the different types of revolution I've heard. Um, so Oz Guinness is a Christian social commentator, a prolific author, um, and I've heard him speak a number of times uh, on this this difference between he distinguishes the American Revolution from the French Revolution, and how the foundational differences there are just really uh, seismically different. Um, and so he, he talks about. You know, the 1776 versus 1789, so the American versus the French Revolution. Um, and he says that the American Revolution uh, was largely but sadly not fully biblical, whereas the French Revolution in 1789 was expressly anti-biblical, anti-Christian, anti-religious and anti-clerical. Um, that there was a hostility to religion and certainly to the Christian faith in the church, which has been characteristic of the French and then the Russian and then the Chinese revolutions ever since. Um, his comments came particularly, he, he's got um, a book on this, uh, which I have not read, but uh, it's called The Magna Carta of Humanity is I think the one where he particularly goes into this issue of the two different revolutions. Um, but the other thing uh, is he is concerned that um, the now what we see is the cultural left in um, Western cultures in America and in Australia and Britain um, are getting their language and their um, posture towards Christianity from the French and not from the American. And so the, the strong increase of anti-biblical, anti-Christian, anti-religious, anti-clerical sentiment that we see um, in the new atheists, we see um, from a lot of um, the progressive secular left um, in, in in media and, and commentary and those kinds of things um, has this French flavour, and so that was part of Os Guinness's concern. Mm, it's very um, interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, finally from me, I think just to bookend the episode by thinking back to where we started with talking about Desmond in the island of Okinawa in 1944, 45, whenever it was that battle took place. Um, I think it's interesting his story is one where he was a pariah as he began to stand mm. where he wanted to stand in his Christian pacifism as a Seventh-day Adventist who uh, didn't even want to touch a gun and he suffered dreadfully for that to start off with and he was he's pillied and he was abused and almost kicked out of the army but by the end of his story he's actually getting the congressional medal of honor because his um humanity shone in the midst of the inhumanity of man towards man in the battlefield and i think to have a christian shine as an example of love for both the Japanese and for the American casualties, um, who saved so many lives and became so loved and understood by the end of the movie, gives me great hope that if we as Christians continue to hold on to the evangelical line, we may be misunderstood and pillied for a time and maybe for all of our time. But in the end, the, the beauty of the gospel will be what lasts forever. And Jesus' great sacrifice for us on the cross at the hand of soldiers who murdered him on a cross um, was a victory and a triumph. And because of his victory on the cross, he defeated sin and death and war. And he calls on all humanity to come together as one. No longer Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, but all one in Christ. And so that we can be reconciled to God by his sacrifice and reconciled to one another is a wonderful miracle. And so my feeling at the end of this episode is rather than feeling timid or nervous in the face of even strongly articulated opposition to Christianity, we can take a great deal of confidence in our Lord Jesus and um, that we have again today, all we've tried to do is to be prepared to have an answer for those who, who, who want to question us. But at the end of the day, we know that the Holy Spirit will help us if we are willing to take a step of faith and share the gospel with someone, even a person who might be a bit hostile towards us in the first instance. Excellent way to finish. <laughs> Thanks very much, guys. Really appreciate your time, as always. Uh, if you are still listening and enjoying what we're doing, you can join the conversation by emailing me at joel at au. You can subscribe to the podcast and or on YouTube if you wish. Check out the Discord link in the show notes if you want to continue the conversation in a different kind of format. We can go back and forward on that uh, platform. And uh, you may like to check out the Soul Revival shop, which is soulrevival.shop, where all our profits of the clothing we sell on there go to our Indigenous ministry partners. Uh, that's going to finish us up for this week. Thank you very much, guys. And as Thanks, always, Joel. we'll finish Thank with you. a one-way. One